Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Friends, this new goon is offered in the spirit of wishing everyone strength today. Some of you may need a lot of strength. Some of you may need a little strength. Maybe you're uh, experiencing some physical pain. Maybe you're experiencing some mental anguish. Maybe you're just tired or overwhelmed. And this nigun from Anna Bakoach is a plea for strength. So if you recognize it, I hope you'll join me. everyone strength and um, uh, rejuvenation in their day. So friends, today we are um, learning about a pearl of kindness that is not something the average person would suggest. If you said to someone in the street, what does it mean to be kind? They might say pet puppy dogs and open doors and put a quarter in the homeless man's cup, right? They probably wouldn't say, oh, go bury the dead, right? The Kivura Tameitim is one of those um, uh, values that emerges again and again in the Jewish ethos around living with kindness. So let's start with a poll. Have you found burial to be meaningful? Option one, I don't like burial, I like cremation. Option two, I choose burial since it's a mitzvah, but it's always been such a painful moment. Option three, burial of a friend or loved one has often given me a deeper sense of closure. Okay, those are so radically inadequate of three options for such complex human emotions. But if you had to pick one of those three, um, which of those three would you pick? Let's give you a moment to make your choice. Okay, let's see our results. Okay, 11% um, says, I don't like burial, I like cremation. 22%, I choose burial since it's a mitzvah, but it's always been such a painful moment. And 67% say burial of a friend or loved one has often given a deeper sense of, of closure. Okay, so let's keep that in mind as we now explore this mitzvah, this pearl of kindness together. As we all know so well, Judaism is a life-affirming religion. 
embracing the sanctity of life. The Torah teaches, you shall observe my statutes and my laws, which man must do, and live by them. Live by them is picked up at, um, as, um, at, at the same time obvious and ambiguous. The Talmud comments, how do we know that saving a life overrides the laws of Shabbat? For the verse states, and live by them, the mitzvot, and don't die by them, right? So living by them outweighs the other concerns we have. The Talmud goes on to explain that one may not perform a positive mitzvah if it will result, or perhaps even if it only may result, in death. Of course, there's times our tradition asks us to be willing to die before violating certain mitzvot, but the general rule is live by them, chai The Rambam makes clear how serious this mandate is by directly connecting it to Shabbat observance, as we already saw in the Talmud. The Rambam writes, it is forbidden to delay in a matter of transgressing the Shabbat for the sake of one whose life is endangered, as it is written that a person will do them and live by them and not die by them. Thus you see that the laws of the Torah do not bring vengeance upon the world, but rather compassion, kindness, and peace in the world. Another prime example of this dictum is that it is forbidden for one to fast on Yom Kippur if it entails risking one's life. This is equally true regarding a pregnant woman fasting if her fetus life is at risk. A pregnant woman who had previously suffered a stillbirth was told by her doctor that she may eat on Yom Kippur. Even so, the woman was unsure and nervous about the effect that fasting may have on her unborn child. She consulted a highly regarded posik who instructed her to eat despite the doctor's assurance. The rabbi later explained to the woman's husband that, her, that he understood from her dilemma that given her history, her worrying alone could endanger the life of the fetus. And he therefore concluded that she must eat so should we conclude that we should not think much about death since, after all, Judaism is so life-affirming? The Talmudic rabbis teach us that we should, in fact, hold a daily death consciousness moment, even while be so life-affirming. It says in Pirkei Avot, Akavia, the son of Mahalel, said, contemplate three things and you will not come to transgression. Know from where you have come to where you are going and in front of whom you will have to give an accounting. Now, here's another way to say it. The Midrash says, when Eshet Potiphar was trying to tempt Yosef, remember that case? She's trying to seduce him. What does the Midrash say Yosef did to resist this powerful woman trying to seduce him? It says, he imagined the face of his father, Yaakov. He imagined the face of his father, and in imagining the face of his father, he was able to build the courage to resist in this moment. Nonetheless, Pirkei Avot thinks that resisting evil can be done through the contemplation of death. By focusing on our death, we can remember how much work we have to do in this world and how short our time is. By recalling the origin of death, the eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and of evil, we recall the birth of human moral consciousness. Adam and Chava, and perhaps most of us, if once again posed with the dilemma of choosing blind immortality or morally charged mortality, would choose, probably choose the latter. The rabbis taught 
Rav Abba Bar Kahana said, when Adam confessed to God that he had eaten from the tree, he said, and I eat from the tree. The Torah does, does not write that Adam ate from the tree. This comes to teach that Adam ate from the tree, and if faced with a choice in the future, he would do so again. <laughs> I'm reminded of a story of my brother. I think he'll forgive me for sharing this publicly on a live stream. My parents went on their honey, on their anniversary, and, of, uh, and he thought like some teenagers do in high school, and he threw uh, like 10 keg beer party with like 500 people in this house that could comfortably fit like 25 people. And my parents on their, on their anniversary got a call from the police that they needed to come home because the house had been destroyed and, and um, there were a lot of problems in the neighborhood. So my father comes home upset from this um, anniversary and he walks my, my brother out of the police house station and he says, so have, have you learned your lesson? You wouldn't do it again. And my brother says, are you kidding me? I'm the coolest kid in school. <laughs> he would do it again. And so Adam and Eve also are, posed, are asked the question, you could have lived forever. Now you have mortality. The whole humanity is kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And the Midrash says, Adam would do it again. He would do it again. That's an interesting thing to think about Teshuvah. Which of our past mistakes would we say, oh my goodness, I would never do that again. I wish I could go back and not do it. And which of them would we say, you know what, like on some level, I'm going to continue to live with that mistake or that mistake was so crucial to who I am today and who I've grown to be that I would continue to kind of affirm it. While there's several, several explanations offered for this strange midrash we just explored, it's quite reasonable that Adam was affirming precisely what we mentioned above, that he would rather be a morally charged mortal than immortal with no moral consequences or conscience. Yet if we are too death conscious, we might find left to be, life to be futile and not invest in this world. It's for this reason that every human may hold a deeply seated fantasy of immortality. Some of these billionaires, instead of investing in reducing suffering of those who suffer the most on the planet, they're investing in research of immortality. They want that research to be actualized before they die. They want immortality. And it, it, this is a phenomenon that um, Yuval Noah Harari writes quite a bit about, if you've read anything of him, the secular Israeli um, historian and futurist. And it is for this reason that God hides our time of death from our hearts. The rabbis taught, had God not hidden the concept of death from the heart of man, man would not construct nor plant, for he would say, tomorrow I will die, so why should I toil for the sake of others? Therefore, God hid death from the hearts of men, so that they will build and plant. I sadly think there are many people over the age of 50 who actually don't think much about climate change out of pure self-interest. They say, yes, my children, my grandchildren are going to suffer immensely with human health consequences, but I likely will not. I likely will be okay um, with the effects of climate change. I, I worry some people hold such an illusion or such a, um, such a, such a feeling in their heart, as the rabbis here say in Tanahuma. We are charged with striking a balance, not an easy task at the least, in the least. We must affirm life and engage in creating a better world for ourselves and all human beings and creations 
And at the same time, be constantly aware that our time in this world is so limited. We may also conclude that we are to care about the body in this world and the soul in the next world. After all, it says in Kohelet, the dust returns to the land as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. But a formulation with such a binary approach would be far too simplistic, since it is clear that we care about the soul in this world in addition to the body and th that we care about in the body after one's life, in addition to the soul, after this world. The Sfat Emet teaches how the body and soul are interconnected. He wrote, this is the wonder of the human being in which a divine soul is present in a physical body, as the Ramah writes in explaining the words who performs wonders. God binds the soul, the spiritual soul with the physical body. If we were only concerned about the soul and not the body, we would not care about what happens with the body after life. But humans are created, but Selim Elohim, in God's image. And on the simple read of the verse, that has a physical dimension to it, in addition to a spiritual dimension, right? This is, this is one of the ways of thinking about social justice as well, that on a physical level, God is black, God is white, God is brown. God is female, um, um, female um, anatomy and male anatomy, right? So, of course, the main thrust of Jewish philosophy is opposed to anthropomorphism and opposed to the notion of God as a physicality, most certainly with an Maimonidean tradition. Nonetheless, the simple read is the human face, the human body is a manifestation of the divine in the world. And with that, we care about the burial of the body, the dignity of the body, the treatment of the body, because this is a part of a representation of the divine. For this reason, we learn in the Torah that not honoring a corpse is an insult to God. Check out this um, morally charged Deuteronomy. When a person is legally sentenced to death and executed, you must then hang them on the gallows. However, you may not allow their body to remain on the gallows overnight, but you must bury it on the same day, since a person who has been hanged is a curse to God. You must not let the hanging body defile the law that God, that God your Lord is giving you as a heritage. This person did something so atrocious that they should receive the capital punishment according to biblical law, and yet we have to take their body down almost immediately because they still represent the divine, even though they've done everything possible, um, something so atrocious, that means their life is not worth preserving in this world. As we see here, it is not just the righteous person who represents God, but even the corpse of one killed for doing something so atrocious, deserving capital punishment. Every human being has a piece of God's image. Jewish practice is to bury a body quickly to help comfort and liberate the soul. The Talmud teaches that one that, that not only is one's family mourning the death of their departed, but also one's own soul is in, a moan, is in mourning. The soul of the deceased body is in mourning. It says over here, Rabbi Chizda said, a person's soul mourns for him all seven days of Shiva. This is the power of Shiva, the seven-day mourning period. Rav Abahu said, everything said in front of the deceased is known until the grave is sealed. Rav Chia and Rav Shimon ben Bar-Rebbe had a disagreement. 
One maintained that the deceased is aware until the grave is sealed. And one said, until the flesh decomposes. Wow, so that's very interesting. This is not the Zohar. This is not Kabbalah. This is the Talmud. The Talmud says, when the body is dead, the body can still hear you and listen to you until burial. That's why we want to raise till burial so that the soul is liberated. But according to this other view, it's not until the decomposition of the body. So you might have said that we should be, we should we should be like the um, be like engaged in cremation. If we want the body to decompose quickly, then we should hurry it along. But Jewish law came and said, "Don't do anything to slow it. Don't do anything to speed it. What is speed it? Cremation. What is slow it? Mummification. Just put it in the earth." Further, the rabbis teach that the person is present at their own hesped, their own eulogies. We don't start to officially comfort the mourners right after death, but first we prioritize the burial law. So let's remember, don't call some, I mean, you might call someone if they're like your sibling, but don't make the priority comfort the mourner, right? The day of the death, the day after the death. They can't think about you. They're thinking about other stuff, right? Help support the burial after the burials when we think about the mourner. Here's what it says over here in um, the Jewish way in death and mourning. Judaism regards burial procedures for the, for, for the most part as devoted to yakara, the shikva, the respect, honor, and endearment of the deceased. It's about the deceased, not the mourner. The sage has wisely noted that one cannot and should not comfort the mourners while their dead lie before them. Let them be in their own space of, of, of emotion. Comfort and relief come later after funeral and burial arrangements have been completed and the dead have been interred. Until that time, the deceased remains the center of concern. Their honor and their integrity are of primary importance, right? Okay, so before someone is, is in Avelut, they're in Aninut. What is Avelut? It is the period of mourning after burial. What is Aninut? The period from death until burial. An Onain is not to be comforted so much as much as supported in, in, the, in, the, in the logistics. There's a lot to do. There's a will, there's an estate, there's a funeral, there's, there's shiva. They're, they're very busy. They don't want to be so busy, but they got to be busy. Let them be busy and support them in the busyness, right? And, and show up. Then, then it's not so busy. But then, friends, you know what's even better than shiva? The week after shiva, when, I, when no one shows up anymore. Shiva, people are showing up. People have too much food. We should think about how much food we send. They've got too much food for their fridge. It, you know, I mean, assuming they're involved in community. Tragically, if someone's not involved, they might have no guests or they may have no food, which is a very different kind of way to perform the mitzvah. But in, in the case that they're very actively involved, they say, stop with the food already. I don't know what to do with all this food, right? And so, but then the week after, nobody's showing up. Nobody's sending anything. That's the time when a friend can really show up. So too, it's like post-surgery, everyone sends flowers. But if someone's going to be with a walker or with in a wheelchair for, for six weeks, for three months, Right? Showing up the, the second week, the fourth week. We want to move on to comforting mourners and engaging in our own mourning process. But first, we may, must make sure the dignity of the deceased is maintained and that the burial needs are met. And so there are people who struggle financially to attend to the burial needs, who could use our help. It is our responsibility to assist those in their time of need. There are unfortunately also those who spend very extravagantly thus raising the communal norms for how much others think they should spend. I was recently meeting with a family to make the funeral arrangements and prepare the eulogy. 
I informed the mourning children that they might consider wearing an old garment at the funeral so that we could tear Kriya, the rending of a garment before the ceremony as is traditionally done. The response I received was the first time I had heard this. The son told me that he would not do it. He would not wear an old garment to tear. He said that for his father, he would only tear his nicest, newest garment. His father deserved it. I was very inspired by this unique commitment and how much this ritual meant to him. There are many meaningful ways to mourn for loved ones. Excessive spending on caskets and tombstones, however, might not be the ideal Jewish choice. The Chafetz Chaim taught that more important than saying Kaddish for a deceased parent or buying a nice memorial tombstone is doing chesed, acts of kindness in their honor. He suggests that using funds to donate books to a synagogue or establish a loan fund for the poor is more important and useful than purchasing a grand deluxe monument for a cemetery. While perhaps 40% of Americans opt for cremation, most still choose burial, which usually involves a tombstone or some other grave marker. And while scant data are available for the cost involved, the average cost of a, tomb a headstone or tombstone is often estimated at $1,500 to $2,000. A simple grave marker can cost as little as $200. Single or double granite monuments in a Jewish cemetery cost anywhere from just under 1,000 to 4,000, while most elaborate inscribed grave markers cost 7,000 or more. Maybe, maybe some folks would be willing to share um, other numbers they've heard. And upright headstones reach $10,000 or more. Jewish funerals and burials in the West, while usually less than the cost incurred by Christians, who often require embalming, rental of a funeral home for several days, etc., tend to follow the lead and can still be very expensive. The cost can be divided into three price ranges, relatively low, 500 to 4,000, medium, 4,000 to 6,000, as offered by the Jewish Burial Society or, or burial groups, similar groups, or high, 10,000 to $15,000, just for this burial and funeral, most de mostly depending on the casket chosen. The purchase of a plot, an additional liner or vault, and the fee for opening and closing the grave adds several hundred to several thousand dollars to the cost. It should be noted that in Israel, the deceased are buried directly in the ground with no casket. <clears throat> and rather than ornate large funeral homes, at most there are small, rather plain one-room one halls. Both of these differences between Israel and America help to keep the, keep the cost down. A month ago, I went to my teacher, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, uh, wife, Blue Greenberg, who was also a friend and teacher, her, her sister's funeral in Beit Shemesh, about um, 40 minutes south of Yerushalayim, about uh, four, 50 minutes uh, southeast of Tel Aviv, went to, the, um, went to the funeral there. And I'd never really been in a, um, in a funeral home like this that was so small and so, and so basic. Around the world... There are differing attitudes toward grave markers. In Asia, Hindus and Buddhists customarily cremate their dead, and there's no tombstones. In the West, many cemeteries have become tourist attractions, where people visit the burial places of famous artists, sculptors, composers, performers, and political figures. Paris's Père Lachaise Cemetery and Vienna's 
Zentral Friedhof Central Cemetery are two that draw many thousands of tourists annually. The old Jewish cemetery in Prague, in which notable Czech Jews like the Maharal are buried, draws a steady stream of tourists who tread the narrow passageways. Some object to the commercialism, as you may must pay a fee for a ticket to a number of Jewish historical sites and then join with tourists who, whose attitudes may not necessarily be appropriate. Others defend the practice on the grounds that the money raised helps preserve the old Jewish section of Prague. In the U.S., people visit Forest Hills to see the graves of Hollywood actors or Woodlawn Cemetery in New York City, among others, to see the elaborately sculpted graves and, 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 and mausoleums of famous historical figures. Does an elaborate tombstone or a cemetery that is a tourist attraction advance the ideals that our ancestors stood for? Would it not be better for us to use our funds to honor the dead by helping the vulnerable in society or devoting time to bring justice to the world? After all, the Shlah HaKadosh taught that one's acts of chesed and tzedakah can not only salvage a parent from a harsh judgment in this world, but can move them straight through to the, through the gates of the Garden of Eden. Jewish law forbids spending spending up the return, excuse me, speeding up the return of the human body to the earth, as mentioned, or slowing it down, like through mummification. Rather, we respectfully dress the body in modest shrouds and return it to the creator through the earth. For many, the grief of the mourning experience is compounded by the stress of the accompanying financial burden. We should be sure to change the precedent from being so prohibitively expensive. The Mishnah teaches that in addition to the behavioral aspects of mourning, there's a significant emotional component arguing that grief is, is only of the heart. To properly fulfill the mitzvah of nichim avelim, comforting the mourning, we should be sure to model modest mourning, which focuses more on healing, growth, and kindness, and less on grandiose, conspicuous consumption to honor the dead. So to move towards a conclusion here, the Talmud teaches us Rav Simlai expounded, the Torah begins and ends with kindness. It, at its beginning, we learn of God's kindness for Adam and Chava when God made clothing for them. And at the end, we are told of God's kindness in burying Moshe. God buries Moshe. That's why we don't have a burial spot for him. Interesting. Lots to say about that. We are asked to emulate the divine. A funeral and burial do not have to mean spending a lot of money, ideally. Rather, a proper burial, Jewish burial means mar making it a priority for the sake and honor of the deceased, for the sake and honor of the living, and for the sake and honor of the divine image. Okay, friends, I know this can be triggering, given how heavy death can be as it relates to ourselves and our loved ones. I would love to hear questions and thoughts on the question of, of Kivurat Hamiti. Hi, Eileen. Hello. Um, I've had a lot of experience with funerals and burying loved ones. So first, your chart, I think, is way out of date. My husband died seven years ago, and his funeral expenses were 22000 and I was not elaborate. My uh, daughter died six years ago and she requested cremation and her whole funeral expenses were only $2,000. It's wow. a big 
difference. Okay, so that's the first thing on price. The second thing, um, I have never understood the Gentile uh, procedure of having an open casket and a wake. I detest the fact that this deceased is laid out for everybody to view. That to me denigrates the person. I in no way want to have a final memory of somebody I worked with or liked and see them in a coffin. It just absolutely, to me, crosses the boundary of respect. <laughs> Great, great. Eileen, thank you for sharing that. Um, so on your first point, I am indeed going to revisit the research to see what the current data is on expenses. Um, I, I think there's a lot of factors here based on city, based on um, location, based upon inflation and rising costs. Um, and I appreciate your numbers of 22K for something that was not overly elaborate and your number of 2K on cremation. Both, those are both helpful data, and um, and I apologize if my data is might be a decade old. Um, yeah, uh, by it, the way, by the way, Eileen, what um, what year was that? Uh, twenty sixteen and twenty seventeen, oh, and this okay. was in Chicago. In Chicago, yeah. okay. Chicago I, is not notoriously expensive. I mean, it's it's a big city, but it's not New York or L.A. So yeah, yeah, but I bet if I pursued it today, it would be another additional for a full. Jewish funeral, probably closer to 30,000. And yeah. I'm suspecting for cremation closer to three or 4,000. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Thank you, Eileen, for sharing that. Um, and so there is there's also an issue there for a family that particularly might want burial, but feels forced to cremation. I mean, someone might use cremation for their own reasons, but someone who um, actually feels forced there. Yes, Eileen? Many families, I think today, probably cannot afford it. Right. But they do not want to let the community know. Right. So, so when, people, when people think about their savings, they might think children's college. They might think retirement. They might think a rainy day vacation fund. How many people in their series of savings think burial fund? I'm, I'm going to need a good 50K or 100K in a burial fund for the various relatives who can't afford their own burials who die before me. I mean, it's, you're right. It's not part of anyone's or very few people's kind of saving plans. So thank you for that. Now, to go to your second point, I want to both, as a religious Jew, affirm my um, sensitivities as the same as what you shared about open casket, and as a religious pluralist, affirm a plurality of ways to engage with this. And so, yes, I am not interested in open casket for, because my Jewish sensitivities, like yours, Eileen, move me towards experiencing that as a denigration of the dignity of the person to be seen in such a state. However, I, um, I want to embrace people of other faiths who, for various reasons, find that meaningful. When my Catholic um, grandmother uh, passed away um, and I stood at her open casket, um, there was no way I was going to walk in the room and not walk up to her and look at her and... Um, and say a tefillah there, but I also wish I hadn't because that image is still in my head. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the human mind works such that some images we can never erase. Um, and um, and I'll always associate her partially with what I saw in that casket. And I don't think she wanted me to see her like that, 
I don't think he actively kind of thought about that, you know. Um, so yes, Eileen. Um, when my husband died, the funeral director said, well, do you want to see him before the service? I said, no. Yeah. Right. For the same reason right. that once you've seen something, it's there. You can never get rid of the image. Yes. And so that's one of the disturbing moments when a body needs to be identified, when it's uncertain who, who that body is. And, and a close person needs to actually look at the body. Uh, and, it's, and oftentimes in a very early state where wounds may not have been um, covered up or the like. In an open casket, they, they you know, the body has been pumped with um, I don't know what you call it. It's not exactly hormones, but, you know, in the, the body's been... Aldehyde. Yeah, okay. So, um, and and makeup is put upon, you know, men and women. And so they're, you know, they're put in fancy garb and things like that. And so they try to make them look good. But obviously in, uh, what do you call it? Not the mortuary. What's it called in the place where you have to go to identify the body? The morgue. The no, the morgue. Yeah, the morgue. Yeah, thank you. The morgue. So that, that that's not a super pleasant place to be. And yeah, so Eileen, I I I I'm sorry you had experience experienced that. Yeah. Um, okay, who else wants to jump in here? Yes, hi, hi, Cheryl. Hi. Um I have uh, a few a few things. Uh, number one, my my sister-in-law's um sister just passed away, and she was told by the rabbi when he was pinning on um the, the black ribbon, um, that for a sibling, it's on one side and for a parent, it's on another side. It's, I, I hadn't heard that before. Is that, is that something? Um, you know, I, um, that's a good question. Let me actually get back to you on that because, um, um, as you know, um, the ribbon is kind of a reform innovation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah as opposed to tearing the garment for, um, and, um, and so I, I, um, I, I'm not sure of that, that shift. Um, but, but I wonder if that is connected to a shift in where one tears Kriya. And sadly, I'm, I, I have a strong hunch in my view, but because I'm not certain, I don't want to comment and confuse anyone. So I'm going to actually circle back on that. So thank, okay. you, for, thank you for flagging that. Okay. The other thing is, do we have, um, the, the shomer who sits with the body before burial is that in conjunction with what you said about the body you know that you're the, the deceased can still hear until burial I mean the deceased is still kind of somewhat present until burial thank you for asking that yes so um there there's kind of two different well there's there there's kind of three different um things going on there one um, is that um, exactly what you said, that, that that soul is present hovering above the body and is very distressed and being totally alone would be, would be all the more confusing and distressing. And so a shomer there um, is a form of spiritual presence with that person who is deceased. The second spiritual idea there um, is that the soul... Um, is um, can you know have a form of elevation even though there's still kind of trap there and saying certain prayers like Tehillim or the like helps to actually um, elevate that neshama. Those are those are two of the ideas there. Uh, the third historically, and I don't know enough to say this matter of fact, but unfortunately, a lot of anti-Semites throughout history 
not only have, have uh, desecrated Jewish cemeteries, that still happens. I mean, you, you almost don't go a month without hearing a, a story of a desecration of a Jewish cemetery in Europe or in America, uh, you know, swastikas being put upon Jewish tombstones. Um, but so too, the stealing of bodies. Mm. I know it sounds horrific, but maybe someone had a gold tooth, right? Uh, maybe it's, it's viewed as like they want to just destroy the body as an act of spite. Um, and so there's a sense of, of, guarding, of guarding that body um, to, in, to ensure the burial happens. You know, there's a similar but totally different idea of a shomer. Anyone know another time that we use the language of shomer where you stay with a person? The day of a wedding. A bride and, and a chatan and kala are not supposed to be alone. They're supposed to have a shomer with them. Um, now, part of that might be about their doubts. Who doesn't get a few doubts on their wedding day? And so the shomer there is to kind of keep their anxiety low, like all the anxieties of the day, keep them calm, let them know someone else is taking care of things, right? Um, but to you know, expand on that, actually, once they are together, they have yichud, and there's a guard for that, too. The, after yeah, that uh, oh, oh yes oh you're right beautiful yeah right when they're alone right after for the, mm -hmm. the eight to 12 minutes right after so thank yeah. you for that you know i i'm not i'm not someone who makes these jokes i don't like these jokes but people like it so i'll say it anyways the one way to think of the show mayor the day before the wedding is that for some people oh getting married is the beginning of their death you know so yeah. i, I <laughs> i'm not so into those jokes because i'm someone who loves weddings and marriage and and don't and don't understand that idea that like Oh, I died, you know. But I guess you could think of a showmare as moving towards death, and some people think that's funny. Yeah, yes, um, yes, Gary. Hi, Gary. Okay, uh, a, a couple of things. Uh, some of you may know that my mother-in-law just passed away a couple months ago. She was buried in uh, uh, Mount Sinai in Los Angeles. Uh, plot had already been purchased years ago when my father-in-law had passed away. Uh, the funeral was $10,000. So, and that, you know, that's opening up the, 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 um, the gravesite and, and the, the dome and what have you. And what it did not include, which I thought was appalling, was we don't have any family there or religious connections. Uh, the rabbi wanted $1,000. Uh, and uh, I, I understand everybody has to make a living, but... Uh, I, Pat and I had decided that uh, my son and I are the ones that officiated at the wedding, uh, at the wedding, excuse me, Freudian slip, uh, at, at the funeral. And, uh, and actually the, the counselor at Mount Sinai thought, because I said, boy, that's a lot of money. She said, yeah, they just recently raised it. Uh, so that was just to update you there. Uh, now, now, Gary, since it's fresh in your mind, do you know off the top of your head what the annual uh, fee is for maintenance? I do not know that, uh, but that was part of the the ten thousand dollars was perpetual care. Oh, perpetual care. Okay, yeah, and that, does that include the purchase of the plot? No, no. The plaque, the the, the plaque is, mm -hmm. is separate, and at Mount Sinai, there everything's flat. So I mean, it's just a bronze or a piece of granite. There's no raised uh, monuments at all. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The, the cost of the burial plot, the, the cost of the land. Oh, that was bought years ago. I have no idea. So, okay, so that 10,000 may, if someone doesn't have clergy they're associated with, may include, uh, I may not include this extra thousand dollars for someone, if there's a rule that someone has to officiate, officiate or someone's not prepared like you to do that themselves, 
it may not, it doesn't include the plot, which may be, an, you know, another large amount. So thank Correct. you for that, Gary. Now, let me add one other thing before I see Matthew's hand up, which is the question that also emerges here around, um, can we lie? Can we break a promise to someone who deceased? Let's say somebody dying says, I want to be cremated. And their family member says, I'm against cremation. I'm not going to do it. Or the opposite. Somebody says, I want to be buried. And, and somebody who survives says, I either don't believe in burial or I don't, I don't have the money for burial. I'm going to cremate. Can we go against the wishes of a loved one? And here, I'm not going to give an answer as much as frame this in two different moral philosophical um, ideologies. The consequentialist says, oh, the, the secular consequentialist says, um, who cares what the deceased says? They're dead. They have no feelings anymore, right? Um, what matters most is the feelings and, um, and the well-being of, of the living. So, of course, you can lie and not fulfill a promise. Who cares about the rules of honesty? Do what is best for all the living people. That's what a consequentialist would say. So your parent thought you were going to spend $20,000, right? But you could tell them you're going to do it, and then you can go spend your $2,000 on a cremation, no problem. But the deontologist is going to say, you're going to lie? Like, lying is wrong. And certainly in a case like this, I don't care what your personal religious beliefs are, what your finances are. You told them you're going to cremate. You told them you're going to bury. Do what you told them you're going to do. So, th so th um, that's an interesting tension to think through. Yes, hi, Matthew. Okay, interesting comment. We bought plots here in Phoenix when we moved here. What did we it had cost? family plots. Uh, I don't remember. Okay. Expensive. Okay. But we had family plots in New York that had been bought. 50, 60 years ago. And so a with perpetual care paid for forever and found letters to my mother 20 years ago when she died, like seven years ago, asking her to contribute more money because the cemetery no longer had the funds. And she said no. But one of the rising costs is due to all the people who prepaid for services 40, 50 years ago and they can no longer survive economically. So they're raising, they're charging today's generation for what was promised to past generations. And it's a very, it's a real issue, including cemeteries that have run out of money. What do you do? Thank you for flagging that. Um, this is not uncommon that these deals are broken. Imagine you, you have a very fixed income as a retired person. You live in an apartment and you pay 250 bucks for your HOA and they've committed to maintaining stuff. And then that housing management company um, goes bankrupt due to mismanagement. And all of a sudden they say, oh, we're not gonna clean the pool anymore. We're not gonna water the grass. And we're raising everyone's 250 a month to 400 a month, right? All of a sudden you're like, well, that's not what I signed up for. Like when I moved in here or so too, you bought perpetual care and it, they, they, they mismanage the money, right? I, I don't wanna go into that, but at Surfside in Florida, people, did not vote to do what was required for 10 years and how many hundreds of lives were lost. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm going to put you on mute because I'm now going okay. somewhere else, but I'm going to try and cool. continue to listen. Okay. Thanks, Matthew. Hi, Vicki. Just two more things. I, instead of talking about the cost, which is a real issue, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's not something that I think is, a, is something that I'm focusing on right now. Um, two things. One was that when you're talking about kindness, 
Um, my understanding was that if you are part of a Hever Kedusha mm -hmm. or a Shomer, that it's one of the highest mitzvahs you can perform because the uh, saying goes that it's the kindness to the dead person that can never be returned. Yes. yes. And that really appealed to me. Yes. Great. Amazing. Thank you, Vicky, for that. So, um, um, were you still going? Second thing. Good. Thank you. The second thing is that I'm listening to people speak, too. Um, I think it's important to leave some direction to your family as to what kind of a funeral and what kind of a burial you would like. Um, my, in my case, my mother didn't do it. Uh, we ended up doing a very traditional one. I suggested it to my dad, and he thought it was a good idea. But when you have no direction at all, you have to get into your parents' heads and figure out what you think you should do. Mm. And I think it helps the it helps the people that are left behind making the arrangements. Mm. Thank you, thank you, Vicky, for that. Thank you. So to go to your first comment there um, of the Hebra Kadisha, if anyone's not familiar with this concept, um, they will um, wash the body, uh, ritually wash the body in this purification process. Um, you know, to prepare it for the burial, very modest burial shrouds. And as, and, um, as, as Vicky said, it's called a chesed shel emet, um, a kindness of truth, the truest form of kindness, because so much kindness today has reciprocity built into it. You know, oh, I'm going to give you something, but I expect something in return. Even if it's not explicit, it's kind of implicit. I resent you because you didn't give me the kindness that I gave you. There's kind of a lot of reciprocity and transactionalism in, in, in kindness. Um, and the chesed shel emet is basically saying, like, no, no, nobody knows you're doing it. Uh, the, you know, you, you don't get anything in return for doing this kind of thing. And that's one of the powers of this, of this form of kindness. Now, Reb Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, the founder of the Renewal Movement, one of the hippiest, dippiest things he did, although he did many, so it's hard to compete, was he wanted to live his own death, experience his own death. And so he had... He, he, had a, um, he had a group of people wash his body um, as if he, there was a Hever Kadisha. And it was the people who was going to be his Hever Kadisha so that he could kind of see what it's like, go through a kind of uh, a mock trial. Is that what you call it? Not a mock trial. A, a mock run um, of, of such an experience. <laughs> so that's not something I actively promote people to participate in. I've never heard of anyone else doing that. I don't think they also, I, I don't know if they put him in a, in a casket or kind of lowered him also, but I know they, I know they did the, the body washing. We did just hear, um, it's not rare that we hear of um, bodies that are put in bags where they're actually not dead yet. I just saw, saw a case of that a few weeks ago. Um, but something that is in fact incorrect is there's always sensationalist news articles that emerge that says, Oh, somebody was brain dead and they came back. Wrong, wrong. You don't return from brain death. A a any any uh, neurologist will tell you, you know, neuroscience expert will tell you what it was a misdiagnosis of brain death, right? The brain doesn't die and then return. It's a, it's a mis. And so that emerges in in the in the organ donation world, where people say, oh, we can't rely on brain death because we don't know the person's fully dead to donate our organs. In fact, if it's if it's a reliable. Uh, you know, situation that we, you know, we can understand that to be the case. Unless somebody holds that death is, occurs with the cessation of heartbeat as opposed to death with the brainstem. So that's on Vicky's first point there on the Hevra Kadisha. On, on her second point, I think Vicky raises a really powerful point around 
if I understood it correctly, the pain that can be associated with leaving no direction mm-hmm. and the pain that can be associated with, with micromanaging, um, that there's a balance between giving some direction of what one would want after their life to whoever those people are um, and not giving too much, giving a little room for their discretion and their needs so that loved ones can be, have a say in what they're doing. Did I understand your point right there, Vicki, that, that balance? Yeah, and I was just going to say one other thing that I thought about when I saw yeah. this comment is that in another instance with my in-laws, they, may, they, they had talked to us about what they wanted, but not to my sister-in-law. And they wanted traditional Orthodox funerals, burials. So we were concerned about what my sister-in-law would say. And had we had the conversation before, that might have been useful. If I, in, you know, she, in other words, here she is, her mother just died. And this is what my husband says, we're, how we're doing the funeral. It turned out it, there was no problem and she was fine. It, it didn't make any difference. But it could have been a very, made it, but it's a difficult time, more difficult. Yes. Uh, not to have talked about it before uh, within the whole family. Oh, my goodness. And just as a reminder, because um, I, I, and I know everyone knows this, but it's one of those things we sometimes can't hear enough. The ways to prepare loved ones for our death, even when we're healthy, um, in addition to d- the discussion of these kinds of things, in addition to writing an ethical will, if that's something we feel called to do, or making a, uh, um, an, an unlisted YouTube video or the like, where we leave a, you know, a message of our teachings or whatever we want to share, in addition to our wills and our, and, and our, our medical directives, um, making sure everyone knows how to get to the stuff. Who knows where your passwords are? Uh-huh. Who knows where your files are? Have you walked them through those, right? And um, making things as easy as possible for people when we die. Um, and um, because there, it is so distressing and is so challenging on an emotional level, not to mention the logistics. So thank you for, thank you for sharing that. I was going to say one more thing before Cheryl, um, which is another tension that emerges here with traditional funerals is the speed to which we want to get to burial. We already shared one side of it, which is we want to get to burial as fast as possible to liberate the soul, so to speak. The other side of it is we don't live in villages anymore where everyone lives in town. Sometimes it takes quite a bit of time to get there. Um, It might take a day. It might take three days. Um, And rabbis and all those involved Um, it should have as much sensitivity as possible to getting the family there. That is a case where we are choosing mourners over the deceased on a spiritual level. You know, you might say we're choosing the deceased because they'd want those people there. But, you know, according to that Kabbalistic idea, at least they want to be buried as fast as possible. And I think that is the case where we should choose the mourners over. The idea of one trying desperately to get to a loved one's funeral, but not being able to get there fast enough is just... um, so uh, um, distressing. So, uh, yes, Cheryl. Uh, just a couple of humorous things right before my question. Yeah, we could use some humor here. Good. Okay, so um, Stan's father for years was the Toastmaster at the Hebra Kadisha annual banquet. So, you know, he always told a lot of, a lot of jokes. So that was, you know, that was, it gave a little lightness and humor to the, to the situation. The other thing that you said about the dry run that Rabbi Shakhtar Shlomi did. Um, curb your enthusiasm, actually, in all of its taste 
listeners <laughs> did just that. They did, uh, the guy, a Jewish guy wanted to know what his people were going to say about him. And so he stayed in his bedroom and they had, they had like a shiva there for a, like a dry run of what was going to happen to him. So, okay. That being said, <laughs> um, uh, Cheryl, you mentioned Cheryl, Cheryl, um, um, just before you move on, you can advise me as someone who doesn't watch TV and has no popular cultural street credit in any regard. I recently found a reference from Curb Your Enthusiasm that I wanted to quote from, but I don't know whether a rabbi can quote from that show. You said, it, it, uh, can I quote from that? Is it, uh, how decent of a show is this? Ask me later. Tell me what it is later. Okay, all right, great. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so you mentioned in the very beginning about, the, uh, you know, the sages teach that we should be, you know, living is what's important, living. And then you mentioned about, being, well, you know, yes, there's occasion where you're, whether, you know, you're willing to die. But if living is so important, then why are we so focused in some, in some places on the world to come? Thank you for asking that. Um, it's funny, I usually hear it the opposite. <laughs> Um, is why are Jews so unfocused on it? Um, but the fact that um, you enter theological circles where it is discussed, you know, is a different reality to engage with. So I, I normally get that question of like, why are Jews never talking about this? This is such a significant thing theologically. And, you know, and, and your question is, because we're so committed to living, why do we talk so much about this? Um, is such an interesting, uh, such an interesting question. And, um, just so I can, I can, I can figure out how, how, how long to give my answer. Who else had a hand up? Eileen, I see, you have a hand up, right? Okay. And then we didn't get to Steve yet or Eddie um, or Yehuda. Good. So let me give a brief answer here, um, um, which is two things. Firstly, I think the most obvious answer is life is incredibly short and eternity is incredibly long. And so it makes sense why people would think a lot more about eternity or at least equally as much about eternity as they would about a short life. Um, and so I think that naturally people are very concerned about what's going to be next. Yes, there are absolutists out there who are absolutely convinced there's nothing after life, right? But I meet very few people like that. Even people who profess something like that have their own you know, inner doubts. And so I think people are worried and concerned and, and thinking about like what will happen to their soul in regards to um, you know, that the second reason I think is that it, that theology is built into our liturgy and built into our Jewish practices pretty significantly, because I think the thought of it can promote virtue. Um, and while it may feel like a very base motive, um, why we should be altruistic for the sake of love and empathy. I think the rabbis very much understood that human beings are fundamentally self-interested and that's nothing to be ashamed of. And for someone who wants to increase their good deeds in the world because they're concerned about the eternal well-being of their soul, um, felt like a reasonable choice, not the ideal choice, but a reasonable choice. And so, yes, we're focused on this world, but we can never break away from that, that ultimate reality. Interesting enough, um, even um, li uh, liberal rabbis, who I think if they were giving a class about afterlife, may give a different view in my experience at liberal rabbis' funerals, continue to embrace a language of traditional theology around afterlife, even if they embrace kind of a, a more liberal theology which shies away from it. I'm curious if people have had a similar... One of, the, one of the things that people say, don't say to a mourner, yeah. is he's in a better place right now. Right, right, 
Right. And so, you know, that's not what, you know, that's not the kind of thing that you're supposed to say. So yeah. it just goes about, you know, with the whole emphasis on the world to come. So, you yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, to be sure, like I, I you know, I, um, I, I, you know, I do think that people have very different preferences of what, what is said to them. And I do think there is that that is a good general rule of like not saying that to someone who just wants their, their loved one to be alive. They don't care where they are. Like, I want them here. Right. Um, but there are those people who actually do want to know, Rabbi, like, do you believe my child is in a, is in a good mm-hmm. place? They want to be told, they want to be reassured that Jewish theology does embrace, embrace that. And not just to a rabbi, they might say it to, to a loved one as well. They, they're scared. They're scared of where their, their loved one's soul is. Mm-hmm. Okay, Eileen, um, is you, did your hand ever go down or is that a new hand up? It's okay. Okay. Um, I am holding up something called Five Wishes. And this is a booklet that you can order. There's fivewishes.org where you can go on their website. And what the five wishes cover are the person I want to make care decisions for me when I can't the kind of medical treatment I want or don't want, how comfortable I want to be, how I want people to treat me, and what I want my loved ones to know. It's like $5, and this I think everybody should do. Great, great. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that resource. I hope others will share other resources that might be helpful. Yes, who else can, wants, to, wants to share? Steve, hi, Steve. Hi, hi, hi. Um, two two things, uh, kind of hippie ho- hokey as, as usual. Um, number one, I have never, ever, ever been able to close my parents' caskets, ever. Uh, I've been to the cemetery a couple of times, and I feel rigid, frigid, and cold when I'm there. I see my parents every single day and miss them tremendously. And just being able to see them gives me a chance to say, hey, thanks. Thanks one heck of a lot. So that's metaphorical, but I I can't think of going to the cemetery. I'm just absolutely cold. Number two, and this is in reference to something somebody said about the bride. And I don't remember what it was, but... Uh, my grandma was the first one in America to die, and and the funeral people came and said, do you want to see the body before we bury her? And, and I said, oh, my God, no, 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 never, never. But everybody else said yes, and I'm so happy they did. He opened the casket, and my grandmother looked 30 or 40 years younger and looked like a bride. I thought, oh, my God, I am so happy to have been able to see you as a young person and know how not only were you mentally and philosophically beautiful, but you were actually beautiful in person. Mm-hmm. So that's it. And that's all. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for that. Um, just one, one, um, one closing thought, which is that it's always good to think about the technical level in addition to the broader, you know, moral dimensions we've explored one of the most technical ways that one can participate in the mitzvah of Kavura to Metim, don't think we have to go pay everyone's funeral costs, um, you know, like, is that there are shovels at a Jewish funeral where you can, dump, you know, put three shovelfuls of 
dirt upon the casket, and you are participating in the mitzvah of Kivurat HaMetim, of the burial process itself. Now, part of that is that it's just on the technical level. Uh, we are physically burying the person. Um, but on the other level, the, I, I have seen some rare types of families who want to stay for a long time that day of burial, but my experience more commonly is that they want to leave. They, they were there for the, the 45 minutes of eulogies or whatever. They were there for the 15 minutes graveside. Like, all right, I want to get out of here. I'm tired. This is a long day. Like, I want to get out of here. And actually, they want to stay until the burial is complete. Um, and so actually helping do that is, is helpful. Yes, there's a team of workers that are usually there who are equipped to go faster. But sometimes a whole bunch of people participating can, can be helpful. So friends, um, I wish everyone uh, strength and an uplifting day. And I hope our reflections upon Kivurat team participating in burial are not downers. It's not a downer, but is actually an upper that we can celebrate life and, um, and the power of life and the joy of life, even as we embrace the realities that life is, has, um, uh, has, has finality. Have a great day. See you soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.